Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. I'm a President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gabon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, January 18th. Today, how the shutdown is hurting federal workers who are still on the job, a trademark fight over the future of the Women's March, and trying to make a comeback after Trump's inauguration. With uh, already having uh, a violent work environment, we had three homicides last year, you know, numerous staff assaults, having to deal with that day to day and then to throw this extra measure of maybe not getting paid on top of it is definitely hurting staff morale. It's causing a lot of agitation, uncertainty. Richard Heldreth is a union representative at the Hazleton Prison in West Virginia. And particularly at that facility, they've seen a real impact. They've had a quadrupling of people calling in sick. And they've had different occasions when people have been injured since the shutdown. Kimberly Kindy is an investigative reporter with The Post, and she's been reporting on how the nearly month-long partial government shutdown, the longest in history, has been affecting all parts of the federal government, including one of the most dangerous law enforcement jobs out there, federal prison workers. We've had uh, four incidents just in the past four days where, where staff have been uh, assaulted. These are usually issues that happen maybe once, twice a month, Whenever we're off our game, the inmates know it. They're very up to date on what's going on with the shutdown and everything. So when you're working a double shift and you're working a 16-hour day and you're really distressed and concerned about how you're going to pay your bills, they say, they acknowledge that this makes them less effective as correctional officers. And Kimberly found that these issues aren't unique to just one prison, or even the federal prison system as a whole. They're emblematic of the dysfunction that all kinds of federal workers are facing across the country. In the places that I called, I did kind of a survey and I called 10 prisons. And in each of those cases, they at least had had to double the number of people calling in sick. So their big adjustment is having to have people who already are working a very hard day working double shifts, so 16-hour days. That's the way that they're, you know, trying to address the the problem because obviously somebody still has to be patrolling. And all these people are calling in sick because they're not being paid right now and they're basically refusing to work when they're not going to get a paycheck anytime soon. Right. It's hard to tell whether or not this is – all protest or if it's because people are trying to work side jobs so they can make some money. I'm told that it's both, which makes a lot of sense. And I think that this is actually probably what's happening throughout federal government. For those people who are being forced to show up, they are trying to work side jobs. And sometimes if you know you're going to get some cash that's going to help you pay the rent, you call in sick and you go do that job. So it's really a disincentive for people especially if they feel like they got to make some money. And these are some of the most dangerous jobs in the federal government. Yes, that's right. One of the things that we don't know is what the impact has been on the inmates. It's 
a concern of inmate advocates that they might not be being treated as well as they normally do. I can say that there is definitely some resentment there from the correctional officers. You know, prisoners make very little money when they're in the facility and they're required to work. They make between 12 cents to a dollar an hour for the work that they do, but they are getting paid. And just the fact that they're getting even this measly little paycheck is rubbing a lot of correctional officers raw. The correctional officers, even when they are being paid, they're not getting paid that much. I mean, these these are not right. people that may necessarily have a huge amount of savings that can float them while they're working unpaid. Oh, definitely. The average salary is between forty dollars to $50,000, but there's a lot of people who are making even less than that, particularly if they just started. They're one of the lowest paid law enforcement officials in the federal government. What are some of the other federal agencies that have been hardest hit and are still working without pay? The obvious examples, the TSA, where people are going to airports and they can't get through security or they're worried because they get through security so easily that things are dangerous. That's certainly something that's already evident. I think the reason why we know so much about TSA is it's such a visible job. And there's so many people, Americans on a daily basis that are encountering them and can sort of weigh what's happening there. I think what's unknown and we're, we're, we're digging and trying to find out is how many other places look like TSA, but it just doesn't have a public face like TSA does. And it sounds like the folks at the IRS are in a similar situation sure. right now, right? That they're being called back to work on taxes because it's tax season, but that they're also not being paid. Right. And there's a lot of frustration there. I mean, they know the reason why they were called back. That was a result of the mortgage industry putting pressure on IRS to do something about putting pressure on members of Congress to intercede on their behalf and have something done. And however it went down, it was certainly effective because they had to show up. And the reason why they put so much pressure on is because the whole mortgage industry came to a grinding halt. Because they need the IRS to be able to approve loans for regular people. Right, exactly. In order for them to be able to process a loan, the IRS is a key and component part of that. So if, if IRS isn't working, then they can't process their loans. And so, you know, here they are not really making a ton of money, making more money than other federal jobs, um, certainly in, in some cases. But, you know, to know that you were called back and... Um, you have to work because uh, rich people in the mortgage industry had enough pull and sway to get you back into your job. That's a lot of resentment and pressure. I think we're all wondering exactly how taxes are going to look like this year. So what happens if these IRS employees decide that they're not going to go back to their jobs? Well, anyone who's an essential employee, including these IRS employees, if they don't show up for their job, they get fired. And they're not. there's not going to be any back pay. And this isn't just like sh- not showing up for your job because you don't feel like going to work. It's because you, you know, don't have the money to pay for childcare or because you have to be looking for another job to get you by in the interim. Right. So you could appeal to your boss, but there's no guarantee that you're going to keep your job. It's one thing if you appeal to your boss and you don't show up for a day or two. Just not showing up at all for your job, that's not acceptable. You would definitely risk being fired. Every place where people are being required to show up to work, and they aren't getting paid, there's tension there, and there is this pull, do I leave? Do I find a different job? Uh, Lots of talk about federal jobs not being the stable work that it once was, because this is happening all too often where there is some sort, sort of shutdown. Certainly, this is historic, but it's not without precedent that 
there's there are shutdowns and feeling unstable in in a job that you you know largely took because you thought it was a solid thing if that falls by the wayside what happens to our federal workforce there's a lot of talk about that and a lot of job hunting going on right now if i don't have my rent in by the first of next month i would be evicted automatically i can't even go to my family my family is with federal government five people and my family is furloughed doing that full-time coast guard job even though my husband's not getting paid he still has to go to work he can't collect unemployment. He can't not show up because it's a military contract that he's signed. He's still going to have to lace up his boots and go to work. All of us deserve a little bit more respect, the least that I can say. We are, we're a good band of people. We're a proud family of brothers and sisters that serve our country, and it should go two ways. It seems like the consequences of the shutdown because it's been going on for so long, have now started to reach even past, like, the actual federal government itself. And it's reached the right. private sector. Tell me more about that. Just because you're not a federal employee doesn't mean that it isn't going to have a huge impact on you. People who work for federal contractors, it's something like one in 10 people that get money from the federal government work for a contractor. So there's a huge influence there. Those people are not getting a paycheck and they will not get a paycheck. After the shutdown, they're not going to be reimbursed like federal employees are. They're just out that money. And so they're looking at laying people off. They are laying people off. They're downsizing. It's um, hitting them in a huge way, and there's no silver lining for them. The longer the shutdown is, the longer that they not only go without pay, but they're going to see that huge hole at the end of the year. Do you know how much this shutdown is costing the government? We have no idea what the financial impact is at this point. It's really hard to even tabulate it without the help of the federal government. If you're just going to even look at, say, one agency or even a program within an agency, they have the numbers. They know how many people are calling in sick. They know how many people aren't showing up. They know the consequences of that. And unless they would provide us with that data, it'd be really, really difficult for us to calculate that. And they're not responding. With the Bureau of Prisons, they wouldn't respond to my questions because of the shutdown. So again, like imagine you're an employee who's being forced to show up and not work with any pay. Um, but the PR department, the only place that can communicate information to the public is has decided that it's not essential to have even one person who can respond to questions that the public might have. And it's across the board. It's not just Bureau of Federal Prisons. It's happening every time I call about any agency where employees are being forced to work. When I call to ask for questions about the consequences to the public or the potential consequences to the public, their response is, we're not staffed to answer questions right now. Uh, it's, it's the shutdown. It seems ironic to me that the reason why there is such a staunch battle over the shutdown and the border wall is a lot about safety and security and that what is happening as a result of the shutdown is causing the exact kinds of 
problems that they're trying to prevent with, with the wall. Right. I think that's the point that a lot of public officials are, are making that in a lot of discussion about what to do in the future, should there be some sort of cap set, right, on how long you can have a shutdown? Because it does create such an incredible amount of instability and because it is so costly. But it is ironic that the fight is all about the stability of our nation, and yet the very thing that's making it the most unstable right now is the shutdown itself. Kimberly, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. Kimberly Kindy is a national investigative reporter for The Post. I'm for women's rights, period. Because I'm old and I'm not going to last forever and I want to get them, get a word in before I die. Two years ago, millions of people around the globe turned out for a day of demonstration. In New York, L.A., Austin, Texas, hundreds of thousands right here in D.C. Donald Trump, go away! Racist, sexist, anti-gay! The Women's March took place immediately after the inauguration of Donald Trump. And a lot of women who had never taken to the streets before, they found themselves like wearing pussy hats and holding signs. The third annual Women's March is this Saturday. And national and local organizers behind the march have been arguing over questions of financial transparency and of who the march is supposed to benefit and of who even gets to join. You have an organization that is trying to put walls around this organic movement and say, okay, these are our parameters. This is what we stand for. And yet you have all of these people and groups and organizations and communities who don't agree on what they stand for, what their priorities are. And so the tension is sort of the top-down approach versus the bottom-up approach. Marissa Lang is a local reporter for The Post, and she says that even the name Women's March has become a flashpoint. National organizers are being sued for trying to trademark the name. But who gets to decide what the Women's March is? The Women's March is not one organization. The Women's March is a lot of little organizations and hundreds of thousands of women who have taken this mantle and carried it forward. And ultimately, what they are, I don't think can be defined simply. So how do these different organizations feel about this trademarking debacle right now? Local organizations are really freaked out about the trademarking debacle, whether or not they're one of the four groups that are actively trying to stop it. Most of them are really concerned about what it means for their future, if they're going to have to change their name, if they're going to have to rebrand, if they can still host events that they can call the Women's March. Uh, it makes Wait, it so, so, so if like the D.C.-based Women's March trademarks their name, in theory, no other city could have a quote-unquote women's march unless it's, like, approved by this D.C. organization? So if a group were to win a trademark of the words women's march and you wanted to start your own own women's march group, you might have to get permission from the person who holds that trademark to do so. Or they might say, okay, yeah, you can use the name, but we're going to charge you a licensing fee. Wow. Yeah. that It feels 
it feels very antithetical to like the original conception of the Women's March, which was this like grassroots organic thing. Exactly. And that's what a lot of local leaders are saying, which is this is not why we started this, that this movement should belong to everybody and we shouldn't be squabbling over who gets to claim the Women's March title and banner. Why are they seeking to trademark? The organization has said that it is a natural extension of where they are and trying to define uh, the organization and the movement and who they are and what they stand for. Because they do get a lot of flack for, like, being disorganized. And Absolutely. And, and what do they want and what do they represent? It's it's their attempt to try to, I think, unify and define what the Women's March is and means. But they've also said that they're not doing it to extract licensing fees, that they don't want to control groups, but local organizers don't believe them. Why is having the name Women's March valuable? Because there's still a lot of power to it, and people recognize it. When they hear Women's March, it still signals to them this big, powerful movement that they remember from the day after Donald Trump was elected. And smaller groups count on that to galvanize women and to get them out to their events and to get them to pay attention. It also really gets the media's attention. If you're throwing a Women's March event in your small town, you're more likely to get coverage than if it was called something else. So there is still value to it. But on the flip side, there are a lot of groups who have started to say, you know what, this name might be more trouble than it's worth, including some of the groups that are actually fighting to prevent the trademark. What I find so interesting about this is that it seemed like the lead up to the first Women's March was all about being as all-encompassing as possible, right? That I think initially the Women's March got some flack because organizers were too white and were not uh, inclusive of the LGBTQ community and that there were a lot of ways in which they needed to become more inclusive. And they really took steps to do that. But but it seems like now there are so many different groups inside the like umbrella of the Women's March that there are a lot of different interests and a lot of different concerns that Definitely. are competing with each other. The the trouble with creating a truly intersectional movement is you have so many different people with so many different ideas and priorities and experiences that it can be very hard to do that without tripping over a landmine. A lot of the local leaders have said that what this experience has taught them, even though they don't feel responsible for it, is that they themselves have a lot of listening and growing to do. Um, The Women's March organization up in Boston, which is called March Forward Massachusetts, which is not directly affiliated with the Women's March, but was sprung out of the Boston Women's March in 2017, uh, has sort of used the national controversy as an opportunity to bring black women and Jewish women together and say, okay, like, Let's be better than this. Let's work through the issues facing both of your communities and talk through how we can all get involved and and truly be intersectional and responsible and together. Um, There are other groups that have said, look, we don't have to all agree on everything. This is not a uniform movement. This is a unified movement. And they've tried to draw the line between the two that we can differ on what we think the best way to handle X, Y, and Z is as long as we can recognize that we're women and we're in this together and we should stand together. So it's it's been hard. It's been a reckoning for everyone whether or not they bear responsibility in the controversy. How will the Saturday's activities be affected by all of the ongoing battles over, like, 
the identity of the Women's March? I think it's going to really diminish the number of people who feel compelled to turn out in Washington, especially. There's a lot of women who, as a result, are saying, I'll go to my local march. I know these women. They're in my community. I know that they're not caught up in this mess, so I'm going to go support them. Women who two years ago took a bus down to D.C. are opting instead to stay in their home states and participate locally. Um, I think it's also made some women do the opposite and say, I'm not going to let this uh, destroy something that I believe is important and something that I have worked so hard to help. And so there are women who are clinging even tighter to the Women's March as a result of it and trying to emphasize that this will not defeat us. Thank you so much, Marissa. Thanks for having me. Marissa Lang is a local reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. Two years ago, Grammy-winning R&B singer Chrisette Michelle decided to do something that the vast majority of popular performers, and especially performers of color, refused to do. She sang at an inaugural ball for President Donald Trump. The entire performance was something like five minutes and 18 seconds. Cleve Wooten is a reporter for The Post. He talked to Michelle about what that decision has meant for her career. You know, shortly after the performance, she says people started calling bookers, you know, people that had scheduled shows, telling them that they should cancel her. All of my music was taken off of every radio station. Like like the day after? Or are we talking the week after? The day after. Okay. The day of. She had to play out the remainder of kind of a a large multi-city tour. And so she did that. But really after that, it dried up. She thought that she'd never perform again. You know, I think it it showed Chrisette that her music, and maybe no one's music, exists in a cultural vacuum. That no matter how talented you are, how, how how pretty the notes are, how well arranged the song is, you know, you you in, a, in an age of Twitter, in an age of a twenty four hour news cycle, it's really impossible to distance um, the artist from the person. I think she's also changed her opinion about performing, about the association with Trump, and I think she really wanted to. Um, for her fans or what's left of her fans or for just people in general to know that she is different and that her opinion is different. She told Cleve she's come to understand certain things about fame. When she became a famous person, people began to see themselves in her. They began to see, um, you know, this person represents me. And so when she went up and sang, they saw her not just as, as an artist and all of that stuff, but as kind of a representation of themselves. They didn't feel uh, represented in that moment, not by me. They felt misrepresented. They felt further misunderstood. And they felt like the person who I was depending on to to speak on my behalf just, just betrayed me. Michelle isn't sure if her career will ever recover. But as a person, she feels like she's grown. You know, in the wake of this, she's moved into teaching and vocal coaching and got yoga certification and just, you know, worked on mental health and just tried to become kind of a better person overall. 
that she feels like she's emerged wiser and stronger and that she's never felt that just getting up on stage and singing was the only thing that she had to offer. So while people felt like, or I felt like people took so much away from me in those two years, I'm more grateful for having finally had a chance to look at what happened over the last 12. Do you know? And Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. I think that is the bright side. I I want people to know that it's okay to expect more from me. It's okay to expect more from me in the future. But I mean, only time will tell whether when she puts out a record, people will remember her as, you know, the songstress that has a, a spectacular voice or, you know, the woman that betrayed us and, and sang for Trump. Cleve Woodson is a reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Our executive producer is Madalie Casica. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music and does our sound design. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and The Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.